Why don't you turn in your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 16 and we'll have a good time. (laughs) Acts chapter 16, I'm going to be reading the first five verses. First five verses of Acts chapter 16. For those of you that maybe uh, maybe you missed last week or the last couple of weeks, I'll catch you up as quickly as I can. But we are in the middle of this incredible book about the history of the church and the life of the church and the power of the Spirit and the gospel as it's going out. And we're in the middle of some missionary journeys involving uh, Peter as well as Paul. And <clears throat> I'm going to read the first five verses today. I'll pray and then we'll get started and then we'll respond to what the Spirit might say to the church. Acts chapter 16, verse 1 through 5. Gospel writer Luke says this, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. The disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith. And they increased in numbers daily. This is the word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, I thank you with all of my heart today. We thank you that I don't have to stand behind this podium and give people personal opinions uh, or things that have worked well for me, but that I can stand here on the authority of your word. We can listen to the word that God has spoken 2,000 years ago that is still being spoken by the power of the Holy Spirit, into fresh hearts right now. And we throw ourselves at your mercy, Lord, and we ask that, God, right now, we need to hear a word from the Lord. We need to be stirred up on the inside. We ask for the fire of the Holy Spirit to be stirred in our hearts and souls today, which can only happen by a fresh word from the Lord. And so we ask, God, you have given us all that we need right here by the power of your word. And so as we open it up, I pray that our hearts would also be opened up as we listen, as we respond, as we obey, and as we are transformed into the image of Jesus, your beloved son. May you do this for your glory, for our good, for your fame across these coastlands and all over the world. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Do you ever feel like something is holding you back? This is my question for you. You ever feel like something is holding you back specifically from reaching somebody in your life or from connecting with them in any type of meaningful or significant way? This could be family, it could be a coworker, it could be a spouse, it could be your children, it could be somebody that you just talk with but have disagreements, it could be your neighbor, whatever it is. Do you ever feel those types of obstacles, like something is holding you back from reaching, with, uh, reaching somebody or connecting with them in any kind of meaningful way? I've recently experienced this as literally as possible. 
A few weeks ago, I took my, my youngest kid, Jude. I have two kids, Abby and Jude. Uh, remember the Beatles, if that's easier for you. Uh, who just turned four. Abby is six, Jude is four, and I just took Jude by himself uh, to one of the most popular playgrounds in Santa Barbara. It's called Kids World at Alameda Park. For those of you that don't know this place, it's like the biggest park in the city. Where other parks have like a slide and maybe a little merry-go-round, this is like a metropolis of fun stuff. And the legend has it that it was actually partly designed by children. And so it ends up being a playground that children love and parents hate because kids designed it. It's fun. And so it's huge. It's big. It's massive. There's all kinds of tunnels to climb through. There's sheer drops out of nowhere. You could just kind of throw yourself over a cliff on this playground. There's stuff like that. It's exciting, but it's also small. It's built like a kid built it. And the problem with uh, Kids World is that kids love it, but once they go into the abyss that is Kids World, you might not see them again. And this is a parent's worst nightmare because they go into it. It's like this dark hole and they disappear and you never see them. And if it comes down to it, parent needs to go into the abyss to find them. And once that happens, you're in trouble because it's small. It's like the size of little kids, and the tunnels that you have to climb through are not very spacious. And I remember on this particular day, about a couple weeks ago, I finally braved it after many years of of reluctance, took Jude to Kids World, and he just jetted through the playground, started going through tunnels, and I lost him. Even though I dressed him in bright yellow, I was ready for this day. He, I, got, I lost my son. He's in Kids World. I didn't know where he went. And so I went into the first tunnel that I saw. And within seconds, I got stuck in a tunnel. I got stuck like this in this region right here. My butt. My butt got stuck in Kids World, okay? I'm just going to say it. And I want you to hear this because this is really important. My butt kept me from reaching somebody who is really important to me. If you can wrap your mind around that, you will understand everything that Paul is about to tell us this morning. Listen to this verse, verse one. Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. But, there's Timothy's but. But his father was a Greek. And there's the problem. There is what is keeping Timothy from reaching people that Paul and Timothy both care about. I've entitled the sermon today, Watch Out for Your Butt. And it's referring to all the things in our lives that keep us from meaningful connection, significant connection with other people, whatever whatever that might look like. Now for Timothy, it was simple. He was half Greek. He was also half Jewish, but he was ministering to a group of people who were very Jewish. And this one element about him created an obstacle for the people that were potential listeners. They would not listen to a guy whose dad was Greek. The barriers went up, the obstacles went up, uh, his credibility was torn down, all because of this this vibe that he had as a half-Jewish person. He was too Greek for their ears. Uh, It might not be that you're Greek. It might be something else. It might be your upbringing. It might be that you're rich or wealthy. It might be that you're powerful or privileged. It might be a personality trait. It might be that you're argumentative and you're really good at it. It might be uh, that you have a certain view or opinion about life. 
It might be that you belong to a certain tradition or a religious background. It might be a certain part of town that you come from. It could be that you're proud or quick to speak or holier than thou. It could be good things about you that still create walls or obstacles for other people to listen to you. Whatever it is, fill in the blank for yourself. It's getting in the way. Now, at this point, whenever I find those types of tensions and conflicts in my own life, things that are keeping me from a meaningful or significant connection with other people, I always blame the other person. Because why wouldn't I? It can't be me. It's probably that they're stubborn or they're ignorant or they don't have all the facts or they're just not listening or they're not, in a, a, you know, they're not in the same place as I am. But almost by default, whenever I experience a relational conflict, I blame the other person. Anybody else do that? Probably just me. Got one hand in the back. Thank you for being honest. I always, that is the default zone that my mind wants to go to. There must be something wrong with the other person. For those of you that are thinking that but not wanting to admit it to me today, I want you to be lovingly confronted by the story with Paul and Timothy. Because if there's anything we can learn from this passage, just short five verses in the middle of Acts chapter 16, it's that there are things holding us back in life from relational and meaningful, significant connection with other people. But what we're going to see from this passage is that sometimes what's holding us back is us. In this case, for Timothy, it was the fact that he was a Greek. They would not listen to him because of his background, because of his cultural heritage, because of his practices. Now, if you were here last week, this might provide a little tension for you. Anybody make it last week uh, when Bo Beckendam brought us through the uh, Acts chapter 15? If you were here for that, you might, you might be experiencing a little bit of conflict and tension with what you're hearing now. Because It was in that passage that it seemed like we were hearing the opposite. And I think anybody that's been going to Reality Carpinteria for very long would be able to say, we're not saved by our ethnic background. We're not saved by our spiritual practices. We're not saved by works. We're not saved by any of those things. And it was absolutely the case just a few verses earlier. I just want to recap your memory for those of you that might not have been there. In Acts chapter 15, verse 4 through 5, a bunch of Gentiles, a bunch of Greeks got born again. Uh, And the response here in verses 4 through 5, thanks Reynolds, says that when those Gentiles came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. And the response in verse 10, just just to give you an idea here, uh, the, the party of the Pharisees, what Paul would often call the Judaizers, because they were so keen on making everybody like them, Jewish, even, even Gentile Christians. What they're doing here is they're saying, hey, we're, we're stoked that you came to faith in Christ. We're stoked that you got saved by grace. That is awesome. We love Jesus. We just want to add to Jesus a few other concerns of ours. One, could you get circumcised? And two, can you honor this? And can you uh, make these uh, Jewish observances? In other words, their gospel was Jesus plus something. Now, circumcision might not be our problem, but fill in the blank for whatever it might be for you. 
If I attend church faithfully, God will look upon me uh, with love and acceptance. If I uh, do the right thing, if I am a good Christian, if I am faithful, if I'm a good parent and never yell ever again, if I'm active in the church, if I am faithful in the church, if I uh, uh, cross my T's and dot my I's, God will look upon me favorably. This is the same type of thing that was being pressured in this world with these fresh made Jewish, uh, excuse me, Gentile Christians. They were being told, it's not just Jesus, it's not just faith, but you should also do a few other right things and then you'll be good. And Peter comes along and he just, just rips into them. Look at number 10. He says, now, why are you putting God to the test? By placing a yoke on the neck of these Greek disciples that neither our Jewish fathers nor we have been able to bear. You're telling people to live a certain way that we've never been able to do. And then he goes on to say, Peter, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as these Gentiles will. Uh, It didn't just stop here. Paul would go on a rampage on this group of people called the Judaizers in Philippians chapter 3 verse 2. He would call them dogs, the mutilators of the flesh, evildoers even, who put more confidence in what they're able to do on the outside than uh, than what God is doing on the inside. He would write an entire letter on this. Uh, the book of Galatians, where he would say things like in Galatians 5, 6, in Christ Jesus, it's not circumcision or uncircumcision that matters for anything, but only faith working through love. And then he would hound the Galatians for leaving the gospel of grace by saying in chapter 1, verse 6, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. In fact, he would go on to say, you have become bewitched. And so this is a huge thing in the apostles in the first century. We are not saved by what we do. We're not saved by what we think. We're not saved by the practices that we have or our, our, our background, our cultural heritage, any of those things. We're only saved by the grace of God through faith. Now why in the world then would the same Paul after a whole group of Judaizers got chastised for pressuring people to get circumcised, now turn to Timothy and say, well, your dad's a Greek, so maybe you will get circumcised. I want to argue today that it's for entirely different reasons. Entirely different reasons. (laughs) Obviously, or Paul wouldn't say it, right? What we are seeing in Acts chapter 15, what we see in Galatians, what we see in Philippians, what we see any time Paul is riffing off this idea of being saved apart from works, is the issue of being made right with God. We are not made right with God by what we do. It doesn't matter how often you show up at church, how generous you are at giving, how many times you have not sinned this morning before you rolled out of bed and got to church. Those things don't matter for your standing with God. What makes you right with God is Christ's finished work on the cross and his subsequent resurrection. We just step into that by faith. Acts chapter 15 is about being made right with God. But you know what Acts chapter 16 is about? It's about being made right with people. And where being made right with God only happens by grace through faith, being made right with people in your life takes some work. Can I get an amen? Being right with people takes some work because people take some work. And so while being... Uh, finding peace with God, we're told in, in Romans 5 that we've been justified by faith 
and therefore have peace with God in Christ. But notice uh, verses like Romans chapter 12, verse 18. When it comes to people, it's different. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So this is an issue not of righteousness, which is what Acts chapter 15 and all those other books were about. Not of righteousness, but of rights. This is an issue of Timothy's rights. Paul, as we read earlier in Galatians 5, 6, says that circumcision and uncircumcision doesn't matter. You could do either one you want. We refer to this kind of thing in Christian circles as Christian freedom. There are certain things in life that just don't matter. You have the choice. Paul would talk about this, right, with food, uh, certain foods. He would say that there's nothing inherently wrong with the foods you eat. Uh, There's nothing inherently wrong with the drinks that you drink. There's nothing inherently wrong with being circumcised or uncircumcised, and the list could go on. There are hundreds, maybe even thousands of things we could do here in, in the middle of Carpinteria that simply don't matter in the scheme of things. And we could say that because we have been saved by grace, we can stand before God free of shame without any guilt and live with a certain amount of freedom not afraid of what God is going to do to us or what he thinks of us, as long as we're not living in sin. We have freedom. Those are our rights. But Paul says something about rights in 1 Corinthians. I want you to look at this. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 10. I have the right to do anything, you say. He's quoting some people. I have the right to do anything, you say. But not everything that, is, that, that you have the right for is actually beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but they should seek the good of others. Paul lays a bomb on people who are experiencing freedom in Christ, saying, just because you have the right to do it doesn't mean you should. In fact... When it comes to following Jesus, things like that get altered a little bit. And this is a hard thing for us to wrap our minds around. I am told uh, that I am a so-called millennial. Uh, According to the comedian Eliza Schlesinger, I am what we would call an elder millennial. Having been born in 1981, I'm supposedly the oldest of the millennials on the crusty end of this side of this generation. And I resonate with a few things. Obviously, any kind of generational things uh, tend to be caricatures, but there's also some truth in them, that we love our rights, and I do. We love the things that we feel we are deserved. Sometimes our love of rights spills into a sense of entitlement. Uh, And though this is not everybody that was born between 1980 and 2000, certainly we could see a lot of young people who just feel like they deserve stuff whether that's graduating from college with a degree in sociology, expecting a six-figure income every year at their dream job, doing what they're passionate about and only what they're passionate about, but uh, preferably not uh, the full 40 hours a week, maybe with some leisure time, and I'd like to have a latte waiting at my desk and an easy back chair, and I'd like to go on long walks whenever I want without warning, and I want to bring my dog to work as well. My puppy uh, weighs 200 pounds because it's a St. Bernard, but don't be offended. 
and the, 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 the things like this go on and on, right? There is a sense in me, I'm speaking for myself, there's a sense of entitlement in my life that there's just certain things that I feel like I deserve. But because I'm seeing some other generations laughing, you're not off the hook either. Because this is not a millennial thing. This is a Western thing. And if you live in the West, you also probably have an inherent love of what is owed you. Whether it's rights or independence or personal autonomy or just having your way, everyone in this room in some way has tasted of that, that we just love. Whether you're young or whether you're old, we love and we want and maybe even sometimes veer into the worship of what we believe we deserve, whether it's our rights, whether it's our personal autonomy, whether it's being able to do what we want and live our lives under our control. And that's why this passage can be jarring because the whole Bible teaches that when you make the decision to follow Jesus Christ, your rights stop becoming the most important thing in your life. They're still there and you should still enjoy them and I do. They just stop taking primacy in your life. Uh, Rights are like butts. They're nice to have, but they get in the way sometimes. And we love our rights, and we should. We love our personal autonomy, and we should. We should love the ability that we have to make decisions for ourselves and make choices. We love the ability to make choices. But when we follow Christ, we must remember that the call to follow Christ is a call to remove that love to a bottom shelf. Your rights are not any longer the most important thing about you. And we see this in Paul giving up his rights right now. Well, giving up Timothy's rights, but Paul is certainly famous for giving up his own rights. As he would speak to super apostles, as they would call them, people who are in it for the money and the fame. And he would chastise them saying, you guys are all about the glory. But I'm over here with no place to sleep, with no place to eat. I'm being beaten, tossed in prison, wondering where my next meal is coming from, fearing for my life, running to and fro. These apostles are like the, the scum of the earth, the people whom the world has passed by. And on top of all of this, I have the weight of the churches upon my shoulders. Paul, of all people, knew how to give up rights. And so now he's coaching Timothy. Yeah, you could, you could remain all your life in this status. You can hang on to your privilege. You can hang on to your rights. You can hang on to the fact that you're a Greek and you can never be circumcised and that will be fine. Your standing with God will never change. But it might also close a variety of doors that you have around these people who I also know that your heart desperately longs for. What are you going to choose? Your rights are the plan of God. Verse 3 through 4, it says, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So after the circumcision, that last uh, bolded line there, I'll give that a little explanation for those of you that might have missed last Sunday. There was a point in that missionary journey where the 
Christian church in Jerusalem uh, saw what was going on with Gentiles and blessed it. Wow, even the Gentiles are getting saved. This is awesome. Yes, we want to bless this. And James, the lead pastor of the church in Jerusalem, said, and and we don't want to, we don't want to lay upon their, their shoulders a burden which they can't bear. All we ask is this. You don't have to get circumcised. You don't have to do any of that stuff. Just stay away from these types of foods that have been offered to idols, uh, uh, are still living, have blood in them, have been strangled, and keep away from sexual immorality, and we'll call it a day. Sound good? What we see in this passage is that Paul doesn't just get Timothy circumcised, he also delivers a message to the Jerusalem council and says, we're doing all of these things, FYI. Notice that they didn't have to do those things. In other letters, Paul speaks clearly about stuff like that, foods. He says it's not about food. The kingdom of God is not about food or drink. It's about uh, righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. Holy Spirit, sorry. Some old charismatic uh, influence coming out there. She comes. It's not about food. It's not about these behaviors, which are really, they're, not more, they're morally neutral. What you eat doesn't matter. What you do in these areas doesn't matter. He does do that universal command of, of, of remaining sexually pure. But the other ones, he just decides to do that. Why is Paul doing this, of all people? He's the guy that seems to shirk religious rules for the sake of the gospel. Why is he being so careful to do what matters to another group of people? I want to argue today that it's because of Paul and Timothy's love for people on the other side. A love that seems to be bursting from inside so deeply that it's changing uh, what they think about themselves. In fact, Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 9, he would say something that kind of sums it all up. He'd say, to the Jews, I became as a Jew. Why? In order to win Jews. To those under the law, a euphemism for Gentiles, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, in order that I might win those under the law. Why is Paul doing this? He wants to reach his community. He wants to reach people. Not just Jewish people that look just like him. He wants to reach people that look nothing like him. He wants to reach people that don't agree with him on half the things that he agrees with. He wants to reach people who would never find themselves walking into a synagogue that Paul would be in. He wants to reach people that are on the other side and he's willing to give up anything, his rights, his freedom, his privilege in order to do that. And so he walks Timothy through this. Hey, this is, a part, of the, this is part and parcel of the gospel. If it isn't that important, let it go. If it's gonna have that much of an effect on people that you are ministering to, let it go. If it's gonna have that much transformative quality in the lives of your relationships, let it go. Not everything that we think is that important really is that important. And as a Christian, it's not all about us anymore. Somehow, by the gracious mystery of God, we still get to have a good time. We still get to see wonderful things happen. God works in each of our lives and shows us wonderful things and partners with us, inviting us into the kingdom of God. But it happens because we've seen a bigger picture than just ourselves 
where we might have been walking through Carpinteria, Santa Barbara, Ventura, looking at the square footage that our own feet have been standing in, the gospel of the kingdom causes the human eyes to look up at what God has been doing throughout. Not just your story, but the story of your city, the story of the country, the story of your world, all over the place and abroad. And sometimes, counterintuitively, the path to freedom involves letting go of what we think we deserve. This whole passage closes in verse 5 with it saying, So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. In other words, it was only when Timothy relinquished what he had control over that the spirit of the, of the living God poured himself out in the neighborhood surrounding Timothy. You hearing this? Am I preaching to anybody today? It was only when Timothy let go of what he thought he deserved that God was able to move powerfully in his midst. Churches being strengthened, numbers being multiplied. My question for you this morning, this afternoon is what are you willing to let go in order to see God move in your life? What are you willing to let go to see God move and work in reality carpenteria? I have heard stories. I know he does that here. I am a testimony of the transformative work and power of God between these four walls. Five, six. And I... I believe with everything inside me, having tasted, tasted and seen what God is capable of through this church, that the best is yet to come. The question is not, what is God, is God going to move and continue to work? The question is, what are we willing to let go in order to see God move? Paul to Timothy, hey, I know you're hanging on to this, but if you were to let it go, God might do something that will blow your mind. What are you willing to let go? I believe this morning that God wants to move in somebody's life here today right now. I believe that God is waiting in anticipation to move in some marriages today. Marriages that are falling apart, that feel like sand flowing through your fingers because you can't keep them together no matter how hard you try to pack the sand. And God who is willing and able to take marriages like that and to pack them together with substance is waiting to do something in your marriage. What are you willing to let go of in order uh, to see that happen? I believe that God is waiting to work in some relationships today. I believe that he is waiting to bring healing and restoration and reconciliation. I believe that God is waiting to pour out his spirit in people's singleness today. I believe that God is waiting to work in schools, in recreational places, in job places. I believe there's people in this building who are thinking, I just punch the same button over and over for eight hours and then I clock out. I don't know how my faith connects with my job place. And God is up here just giggling, giddy, waiting in anticipation saying, oh, if you would just let me in, I would show you things that you couldn't even dream of. Exceedingly, abundantly, beyond anything that we ask or think and that is something to speak about because I know this church we ask for big things I've been in your prayer meetings before you scare me sometimes and the Bible's promise is I can do exceedingly abundantly beyond all that you ask or even imagine 
Could it be that for some of us, the one thing keeping us from a breakthrough from God is our own inability to release control? What are you waiting for? Life is short and God's got a story to write with some of you. But perhaps we've been listening to wrong stories too much. The cultural script of the day is not release control of your life. Since childhood, in schools, in our families of origins, we've gotten different scripts than that. Nobody tells us you are to release control and not assert yourself and not try to uh, uh, power your way to the top. Just, just surrender your rights and freedom and things will happen. Nobody tells us that. In standard business practices, in politics, even in churches, we get a different script. It's all about power, it's all about control, and it's all about getting yours. And only when you can secure yours will you taste and experience freedom. That is why, brothers and sisters, the gospel is the most refreshing, the most powerful, the most scandalous thing that the world has ever heard before in their lives. Because in a climate like that, where we are constantly being told from day one that it's all about power and control, God breaks into our world with a different narrative. Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 through 8, Have this mind in yourselves, which is also yours in Christ Jesus, who though he, Jesus, existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. Hear what he's saying? If there's anybody in the universe with rights and power and who deserves a modicum of control, it's Jesus. And instead of exercising his control, which would have not been very good for us, he instead puts on flesh, John chapter 1, verse 14, and steps into our mess, becoming one of us. He steps into our mess. I, we have to wrap our, we, we've heard these verses so many times. We have to wrap our eyes and minds around what that actually means for him to put on flesh and dwell among us. We're used to seeing passages of Jesus healing the sick and preaching good sermons. He did all of that. But imagine this. He had to take naps. And he woke up with morning breath. And he got tired. And his feet were disgusting because he was walking around barefoot in Galilee. Like he put on the mess of humanity. Paul goes on to say in Philippians that the way in which he gave up his power was by humbling himself to the point of being the servant of humanity. So it's not, it's not enough that Jesus just came into our neighborhood. He also serves those who are so bad at loving other people. He's the one. And he did it so well that it eventually took him to the point of death. Jesus, the one with all the rights and all the authority and all the power gives them up for a season in order to give his life as a ransom for many. But the gospel doesn't stop there. Whereas the scripts that we have grown up and even tell ourselves is that to be powerful, to be successful, you've got to get it yourself. We get a swap here. Because Paul would go on to say that therefore, because of Jesus' method, therefore, God highly exalted him and bestowed upon that guy the name that is above every name. 
And at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. That is the good news. You know what the gospel is in three words? Jesus is Lord. How did he become Lord? By lowering himself and giving up his rights for the big picture. Now if that isn't crazy to wrap our minds around, look at the, look at the first line there. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Jesus didn't just do this alone, but he also calls people, his followers, to identify with him. He's showing us, his whole life was spent showing us the real way to live. And it's a costly way to live. Cost him his life. It'll cost you things too. It'll cost you your love for control. Your ability to sort things out. It'll cost you the things that you think that you deserve. It'll cost you what you think is owed to you. It'll cost you convenience. It might cost you money. It might cost you health. It might cost you relationships. But it will not cost you joy. The one thing we are promised by God is that we could lose everything in this life but die with a smile on our souls. That the person who gives up things in this life will reap far more than that in the one to come. Perhaps that's really what it's, what it's about. You know, when I think I'm going through this and just thinking right now about the reasons why I, I harbor and assert myself and push other people down and fight for my way in big things, power struggles, but also in small things like with my spouse or with my kids. And those tiny little moments that are fewer than, they're, they're fewer than they should be where I give up my rights and power and say, I'm sorry. <laughs> and how much healing overwhelms the heart in my family when that happens. And I see the truth in the statements that Jesus and Paul made. But why is it so hard for me in the moment? And for me, I don't know what it is for you, but for me, I think, as I've been reflecting on this uh, for a few weeks, it's just because I love control. Deep down, beyond the preaching voice and the notes and the text and the jokes, I am a man who loves to be in control of his life. And sometimes, I don't know if you can resonate with this, but it feels like 95% of my life is not in my control. And so that 5%, I grab it hard, right? That 5%, whether it's with my kids or with my uh, wife or with coworkers or by myself, that 5% is the, the little part that I can control and I take it. And for those of you that feel the same way, you're not coming out of this out of malice, you're not trying to ruin the world or not follow Jesus, right? You're just tired. Like this 5%, that's all I got today. And I'm afraid that if I give up that 5%, my life will fall apart. I want you to listen to the invitation of Jesus Christ to you right now. Who would say, I can almost imagine him in a group of disciples covering his mouth and saying, you know, the world says that to find your life, you have to grab hold of it by yourself. But I've got news for you. The person who lets go of their life for my sake will actually experience what real life is all about. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke, my way of seeing and doing things. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am lowly and gentle and light of heart. And in so doing, you will find rest for your souls. I'm going to ask Mike and the rest of the worship team up here as we transition into song. And I'm just going to, I'm going to end early today, my gift to you. But for all of you who are afraid of losing your joy because you're losing control of something, I want to invite you to consider the words of Jesus, who is a master of life, knows it better than anybody that you read, anybody in your life, and certainly knows it better than we do, who's extending to you the invitation. You'll experience more in this life by surrendering to me than anything else. And I want you to think of this. What, what if, what if the one thing holding you back from true joy and delight, what if the one place of healing, the one thing holding back transformation and healing, the one thing holding back breakthrough in your life is the very thing that you're hanging on to because of fear of losing control? I want you to consider this invitation not just to Timothy, but to you as well. What is it? What's that safe place in your life that you will not give over to God or to other people? What is that 5% or 3% or 1% that you are digging your fingers into because you feel like if you lose it, you'll lose everything? What is that thing that God keeps prodding in your life and heart that you keep pretending like you're, uh, you're not listening and you're sending him to voicemail because you know that he's going to ask you to give up that one thing and you just don't want to? And I want you to approach this maybe for the first time not out of a place of guilt or fear, but freedom, true freedom. What if that's the one thing holding you back from experiencing the presence of God like you've never experienced it before in your life? What if that's the one thing holding you back from healing and reconciliation in your relationships? What if that's the one thing holding you back from experiencing an outpouring of God's spirit in your life, in your neighborhood, in your family, in your relationships, in your work? And to you, I extend an invitation as we sing. What do you need to release today for God to let loose? We've got carpets at the front. For those of you that uh, like to carve out solitude to be with God, I invite you to get on your face in the front. There's prayer teams to the right and to the left. You can find them with the lanyard around their necks. We'd love to pray for you for anything that's going on in your life. We'd love to serve you in that way. And there's the communion, what Jesus told us to do, to take the bread, which signifies his body that was broken, to take of uh, the, the cup and to dip into the cup and to do that in remembrance of him. You know what we're doing when we do that? We, we're, we're remembering that every time we do it, that Christ fought the battle so that we wouldn't have to. Every time you take of that, that morsel, you strengthen your faith and remind yourself, it's not really about me, is it? And that might be the most liberating thing you hear today.
Let's encounter the risen Christ who is here and present to bless and to heal and who will never leave you or forsake you, has his eye on you, and has been trying to get your attention. Let's give it to him.